0: Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 206 with Luke Childs. Have you ever wondered how to recover Bitcoins from a seed? Maybe your friend doesn't know which wallet they used. Well, in this episode with Luke Childs, we talk about how to recover them into Electrum with his newly written tool. And we also talk about Umbral, a new node package promising very easy setup. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto-stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. I personally appreciate that Swan is Bitcoin only and is dedicated to Bitcoin education. Go to swanbitcoin.com.au to get $10 of free Bitcoin when you start stacking with Swan. And Swan has some news to share. They've had massive demand for daily buys since the day they launched the service. One of the big positives of regular recurring buys is smoothing out price volatility. So buying daily will catch those dips even better than buying weekly. There are a limited number of spots in the Swan Daily Buys beta. So head over to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys to get into the beta. That's swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys is. Announcing a new sponsor of the show, Knox Custody. Knox is the only Bitcoin custodian with insurance covering the full value of holdings. So, for example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. No fractional coverage or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. Knox is backed by investors such as Fidelity Investments Canada, initialized. Capital and Inovia. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. KnoxCustody.com. Lastly, Unchained Capital, Bitcoin native financial services. Unchained are doing a lot of work to make multi-signature accessible and they're doing Bitcoin in a way that respects the not your keys, not your coins ethos of Bitcoin. So if you're thinking about your Bitcoin security, if you're sitting on a single signature or if you want to go zero to multi-signature, Do it with Unchained. They're offering a vault concierge onboarding package where you can get a guided setup call and have hardware devices mailed out to you. So the packages range from $1,500 down to $1,000 for setup assistance. And this includes $1,000 in the vault and potentially if you want the hardware wallets with that. So use code Levera for a discount and go and get set up with them today. And don't forget to read Parker Lewis's series Gradually Then Suddenly available on the website at unchained-capital.com. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. So Luke, I've been following you for some time. I've seen you've done some great work uh, in terms of contributions in open source Bitcoin development, and I thought it would be a good time to get you on the show. So Luke, just for uh, listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who who are you and why are you working on Bitcoin open source?
1: Yeah, so uh, I've been working full time on open source for about four years now. Um, So uh, in 2016, I quit my job. Uh, and started working full-time on open source. Um, so for the last four years, I've been doing a lot of open source stuff, not just on Bitcoin, but just open source in general. And it's been sort of the last two or three years I've really focused on uh, Bitcoin specifically. Um, I've been involved with Bitcoin for a lot longer than that, but I've only sort of been active, actively contributing uh, for the last sort of two or three years.
0: Right, and so uh, it seems like you've done a range of things uh, in in the Bitcoin world that I've seen at least in terms of contributions with various different wallets and things. So, could you just maybe hit a few highlights there in terms of what are some of the things that you've been contributing to uh, in recent years?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, I was working on um, uh, Bitcoin JS, which is a JavaScript library. Um, so, it's not a wallet, but uh, a lot of wallets, which are implemented in in JavaScripts, uh, use this library. So. So that's not a wallet itself, but most wallets are using this code. So uh, Bitcoin.js was something that I've done some contributions towards. Uh, I worked on uh, the PSBT functionality on Bitcoin.js um, and also recently adding uh, pay join functionality to Bitcoin.js. Also Electrum, uh, so the Bit39 recovery uh, pull request that just recently got merged. And I've, I've added a few smaller features to Electrum, like uh, SSL fingerprint verification, Uh, And I also worked on the uh, adding page on functionality uh, into Blue Wallet as well. Yeah,
0: that's awesome, man. That's really uh, some really well-known wallets in the space and uh, the library as well. Um, I I thought it would be good to talk about your recovery tool as well, because I think that's a really interesting tool set. And it's kind of funny how we've gotten into this scenario, why this tool is needed. So maybe tell us, why would someone need this tool and why did you write this tool?
1: Yeah, so uh so the thing is uh when you have your like bit 39 seed phrase technically that's not actually enough to recover all of your funds uh, so the way it works is that uh this this bit 39 seed phrase sort of derives a tree of different multiple wallets um, and you also need the derivation path which it, it which tells the wallet exactly which branch on this tree uh, it needs to look to find your addresses so you so if you just have your seed phrase alone the wallet needs to needs you to either tell it the derivation path or it needs to sort of brute force all of the possible uh, derivation paths until it finds the wallet with the funds on. So this is what that um, pull request does. It, it brute forces all of the different possible paths until it finds some with with funds on and then asks the user, like, we found some funds here, we found some funds here. Which one do you want to uh, restore?
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So I guess just to break that down for listeners who might not be familiar, you might be trying to help your friend and your friend may not know which wallet they had used, but they might just have this 12 or 24 words. And in that scenario, why is it that, you know, you can't just necessarily, um, you know, just recover that into Electrum?
1: So, um in many wallets, you can do this. So, although there are all these different deriv- derivation paths, there are some agreed-upon standards that most wallets follow. So, it's not too bad. A, there is a lot of interoperability where, if you create a seed in one wallet, you can just import that seed into the other wallet, and it will just derive it. But there are some the, the derivation paths differ for different script types. So, this is like if you have a SegWit wallet or a non-SegWit wallet, um, they have different derivation paths for that. Um, and then also there is a slightly different seed formats. So BIP39 is sort of the standard um, that most wallets use, but Electrum has its own seed format that is incompatible. Um, So Electrum by default, when you create an Electrum wallet, you you don't actually have a BIP39 seed, you have a custom Electrum seed. Uh, You can recover a BIP39 seed into Electrum, uh, but you can't recover an Electrum seed into most other wallets. Uh, And the reason for this is that, um, so the derivation path, the extra piece of information you need along with your seed, uh, that's separate in BIP39 in BIP39 seed words seed phrases uh, but electrum seed phrases actually encode this uh this version information into the seed itself so with an electrum seed you don't need that derivation path as well when you just import that seed into electrum um, it can actually it actually understands what your derivation path is just from the seed phrase alone And so that's
0: uh, one of those uh, perennial longstanding debates uh, around which sort of seeds should people use. And uh, I think the point of view from people like Thomas and the Electrum team is more like we don't want the users to have to be technical enough to know to write down the derivation paths and so on. We just want them to be able to write down these 12 words or 24 words, whatever, and that's enough. Whereas basically all the common or well-known hardware wallets and other wallets are using BIP39. So that's kind of where your tool is really uh, handy. So um, maybe, do you want to just tell us a little bit about, I know it's not your website, but if you could just tell us a little bit about walletsrecovery.org and the information there, I'm sure you're familiar with it.
1: Yeah, so Wallets Recovery uh, was a great website. That I, it was actually really useful for me implementing this feature. Uh, and it lists all of the... Um, Derivation paths commonly used for wallets. So there are these standard derivation paths that I mentioned before, but there are some wallets that uh, they don't use a standard derivation path. But but like it's known, it's published of what their derivation path is, so we can specifically check for that. So wallet recovery is just a great resource where it lists uh, pretty much every single wallet and it lists the derivation path uh, that it uses. So um, that's what we use in our tool in the election tool to recover. Uh, And if anybody needs to recover funds and they know what wallet they've used, they can go to this website and they can see the the information that they need to pair with their seed phrase.
0: One of the cool things with your tool is if you, let's say the listener and they've got, they're trying to help their friend with Bitcoin and their friend has written down these words and they forgot which wallet it was. Well, that's where this tool actually is quite handy because now it will just scan through all of the common ones, right?
1: Yeah, Exactly. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, what you what you said before about uh, the different arguments between the, the different seed phrases. Yeah, like I can kind of I can see both sides of the argument. I can sympathize with both sides of the argument, but I think it it comes down to what you think a seed is and what you, what relationship you think a seed has to a wallet. It comes down to whether you think uh, a seed has a one to one relationship with a wallet or a one to many relationship with with a wallet. And like what I mean by that is do you think every wallet that you create should have its own seed? Or do you want to have one seed phrase and be able to create uh, like infinite wallets uh, with that seed phrase? Because that's the way that Bit39 works. If you have a Bit39 seed phrase that works with these hardware wallets, you can derive multiple completely different, completely isolated wallets using different derivation paths from that one seed. Um, And if that's the way that you think seeds should work, then adding versioning information to a seed is actually not a useful thing because if you have versioning information in your seed, That says this is a segwit wallet and then you create a segwit and a non-segwit wallet from that well then your seed is misleading when you try and recover um so yeah or like if you take it from the electrum point of view where you think every every single seed every single wallet should have its own seed then it does make sense to encode the data but the i mean my personal opinion is that actually i think bit 39 does it right i think it's good to not have versioning in the seed and the reason i think this is a better approach is because it makes it much easier to securely store the seed phrase, which is really the, the really sensitive information. If you have one seed phrase that like seeds everything, uh, you can you can store this super securely. So you can like uh, load it onto a hardware wallet, so you have something to actually you know access the seed from. But then you write this down. You can put that in a safe. You can bury that safe in your garden. Like you you never need to access that again. It's super secure. You never need to touch it. Only in the event that like your hardware wallet gets destroyed or something happens and you need to recover your funds, then you can bury up that safe, but you can continue to create more, like more and more wallets in the future without needing to access the phrase just from a, just from a hardware wallet. Um, so the fact that you don't have to keep on accessing that storage frequently, uh, means that it's sort of much more secure. You you can, you can make it much harder to get access to because you don't need to access it regularly. If you have to generate a new seed every time you create a wallet, you need to keep digging up your safe every time you do that and store that seed. And then you end up with loads of seeds and how do you keep track of which ones are for which wallets? And, and maybe you can't be bothered to keep on digging up that safe. So you have some in your house and some in different places. And how do you keep track of them all? I think it's, um, a lot harder to keep the, the seed, which is the entropy, which is the real private information safe. When you have, when you keep on generating it each time you create a wallet, um, so yeah, I think it's it's actually a better approach to take the bit thirty nine approach where you just have this one piece of super secure entropy that you keep secure. You don't have to worry about it again. You can derive more wallets from it. And then, like it's a valid concern that um, yeah, then users need to need, need to need to keep track of their derivation paths and any other metadata they need to recover different wallets. But the thing is, this information on its own is not really that sensitive. As long as you know when it's not paired with the with the seed phrase with with the, the entropy that's seeding the wallets. This, these derivation paths uh, are not particularly sensitive. So you could like, you know, stick it on Dropbox, in, like encrypt it, stick it on Dropbox. Um, it's, you know, that's back up backed up and replicated like all over the place. Like, you could even tweet it publicly if you wanted. I wouldn't recommend it. But like you could just tweet all of your derivation paths every time you create a wallet. Like people can't really do much with that information without the seed phrase. Not great for your OpsEc, I, I wouldn't recommend it, but but it's not particularly sensitive data. It, it's just important that you don't lose it. Um, So I personally think that this is a better approach. Um, Yeah, but like I, there are, yeah, there are different perspectives on it and I I can understand the Electrum perspective too. I just think it makes it harder when you have, you end up with like loads of different seeds for all these different wallets to keep track of.
0: Right, yeah. And the other thing, I guess, from if I were to try and steal, man uh, the Electrum and Thomas view, it might be something more about, actually, it's about, it's not about, the, the sensitivity of that information. It's more about the user knowing that they need to back that up. And I think, yeah. you know, for for those of us who are more like someone like yourself, you're a developer, you're much more technical, you would never not know that. And someone like me, I'm more hardcore into Bitcoin. Obviously, I won't forget that. But a more casual Bitcoin person might not. And I guess that's part of the argument,
1: right? Yeah, that's definitely a valid concern. But I think there are ways we can make that not such an issue. So like one would be maybe some kind of like standardized backup procedure where like it could be built into wallets where like each time you create a wallet, it saves your derivation path on like a file somewhere. Or maybe you can even hook it into like Dropbox or even your own self-hosted storage or something that automatically, automatically backs that up. Um, like if there was some sort of standard protocol that all the wallets supported to do that, that could be one solution. Also, like at the moment. Um, there aren't that many different derivation paths to scan. So the election functionality works really quickly. Like uh, when I was testing it out, I think I tested it on like maybe scanning 10 different derivation paths and it, it completed that in like less than a second. So, you know, because the way election works, it has the entire UTXO set indexed. It doesn't have to do a full rescan like with Bitcoin Core when you're recovering funds. Uh, the election server has everything indexed. So it's super quick to query. So, like, yeah, I could scan 10 different derivation paths in like under a second. So right now, today, even if you don't know your derivation paths, as long as it's a well-documented one, you can brute force all of the combinations pretty quickly today. It doesn't matter. You don't actually need to remember that data. Like going forwards in the future, you know, it's, yeah, it's a valid concern that maybe when we, in the future, when we have loads of different uh, derivation types and stuff, maybe that might not be feasible anymore. But for now, at least, it's it's pretty feasible.
0: Um, and I guess just one a few other little technicality points. So... Which paths? We're looking here only at the non multisig sig schemes, correct?
1: Yeah, so it it uh, it can recover every single non multisig sig path uh, recorded on walletrecovery.org apart from uh, Bitcoin Core. Uh, uh, without going into too much technical details, there's basically the concept of hardened derivation and unhardened derivation. And uh, Electrum only works with uh, unhardened subkeys at the account level. And that's not what Bitcoin Core uses. So uh, although I could have implemented scanning for the Bitcoin Core uh, derivation path, it's not actually compatible with Electrum. It wouldn't be able to be imported into Electrum. So I I didn't implement that. But every single other wallet, single signature wallet on walletrecovery.org is is supported by the Electrum feature.
0: Great. Uh, I'm also interested to just chat a little bit about, because we were chatting about this uh, offline before, is also just like that difference between the i guess the receive chain and the change chain could you just outline a little bit about that what are those and what's what's going on with those
1: yeah so so if you think of um like as i mentioned before like the seed the seed phrase basically generates like a tree with different branches so like generally like the first level is the script type which could be SegWit or non segwit then each of those branches have their own branches for the account level which could be like the first account the second account the third account and then each of those accounts have branches that we call internal and external uh, so the external branch is for addresses that you uh, receive. So if you, if you, if, if I want to send you some Bitcoin, you would give me an external, an address on the external branch, and the internal branch is for change addresses. Uh, so if you were paying me and you had some change to send back to yourself, that would always go back to uh, a uh, a change address on the internal branch. Um, and this is like we actually make use of this. Uh, I made use of, use of this to get kind of a shortcut in the rescanning functionality. Because normally, when you're scanning a chain, you would scan like the internal chain and the external chain and, and recover the final balance. But um, because I was only trying to count, like trying to figure out has this account ever been used, I wasn't trying to say let's let's figure out the final balance of this account because Electrum handles that on its own. I was just trying to figure out has this account ever been used. All I needed to do was scan the gap limit on the uh, external chain, which is the first 20 addresses that they're gonna receive from. There's no need to worry about scanning the change addresses because if they haven't received, uh, if they've never received uh, a transaction, then they'll never have any change because they never would have spent a transaction.
0: Clever, I like that. And so we should also jump into
1: gap limits. So what is a gap limit? So a gap limit is uh, the, the gap, the empty gap that you can have between addresses that are unused. So the reason we have this is, um, because the, like, uh, bit 44, uh, like wallets are deterministic, so when you have the seed phrase, it can, it can generate, um, like infinite addresses. Basically we need to set some sort of same limit of like how far ahead your wallet is going to be scanning. It can't just scan. T- it can't just be looking ahead for infinite addresses because like you know, that would be impossible. Um, so we have to set some sensible limit for how far we look ahead. And 20 is like the sort of widely agreed upon limit. So say, uh, if you, if you, if, if uh, you want to donate to me and I generate an address for you and then somebody else wants to donate for me and I generate an address for them. Um, I don't know that you're actually gonna spend to that address but I should still give everyone else a new address uh, because I don't want to give someone the same address. That's address reuse, that's, that's bad for privacy. But if I gave out 20 addresses that were unused, and then I gave out the 21st address to somebody else, if those first 20 people didn't ever spend, didn't ever uh, send Bitcoin to those addresses, and the 21st person did, when, uh, when I was like re-recovering that seed into a wallet, it wouldn't, it, it would actually just stop scanning. When it sees a gap of 20, it would stop scanning and say, this address isn't used anymore and it wouldn't be able to recover it. Uh, so it's very important that wallets respect this limit because if some wallet decided to say, set a gap limit of 25, and then that situation happens, if you imported that seed phrase into a different wallet, it would just stop scanning when it, when it got to that gap of 25 and would never continue to scan the rest of the chain. So we'd have this awful fragmentation where like certain seeds only work when they're imported into certain wallets, which would be a really bad situation.
0: Got it. So let me just replay that, I guess. So we can think of it like our wallets have been coded in a way to sort of check the first 20 addresses, let's say. And so the problem might arise in some scenarios where, let's say, it's a donation scenario or something else and people just haven't been paying those addresses so then in reality let's say somebody donated to the 29th address or whatever but because you know you've only set the wallet to scan to the first 20 it might think oh no i don't have any money when in reality it does have its money it just didn't scan to that
1: 29th address would you say that's a good summary yeah yeah Yeah, that's exactly right um so yeah, like so So in that scenario, you would just need to start reusing, well, you have two choices. You either start reusing the addresses after you get to 20. So you start, say if, you, if you're on the zeroth address, so you give out the first 20, if somebody, if the 20, none of them have been donated to, and somebody asks you for the 21st one, you have to reuse the first address. Alternatively, you can give them the 21st address, but you need to note down somewhere that my gap limit is now 21, and you need to use that the next time you restore your wallet. Um, so like... Sometimes you have to do that. Like, for example, like uh, merchant solutions like BTC Pay, I think they use a really high gap limit. Like, I'm not sure what it is, but I think it might even be like a thousand or ten thousand or something crazy like that. Um, And like, they need to do that for their use case because obviously, if you have a store uh, and you're giving a unique address to each customer and you're tracking that address for that specific payment, if you have 20 people in your checkout, um, you can't just like wait for the first person to pay until you can issue out a new like invoice to somebody else. Um, so in their scenario, they have to just go way beyond the gap limit. But like, that's fine for that specific scenario, because if you're running a BTC pay store, you should be aware that there are these, you know, that if you ever need to recover your funds, you need to use a specific gap limit and stuff. So it's fine for like specific use cases. If you need to go beyond this gap limit, it's just very important for general use, for general wallets that, that they respect the the standard 20.
0: And I guess for a listener or for a user who is not so familiar with how Bitcoin works, they might try to recover a wallet and then think, oh, oh, shit, I've lost all my money. I can't see it. Where is it? And in reality, it's just that you need to tell Electrum, hey, go and scan those extra addresses. And so that's where there's like a command to go and do um, like to manually go and search those additional addresses, right?
1: Yeah, so not very many wallets wallet support this, um, but Electrum is one of the few that does this. It's it's not, um, yeah, it's not natively exposed in the GUI for good reasons because then people would end up like losing money probably. Um, but yeah, if you go to the console, you can just enter a couple of simple commands that will increase the gap limit. So if you if you know your derivation path, you know your gap limit, and you're not sure how to recover them, uh, you can do that fairly easily with Electrum.
0: Yeah, and so I guess one thing to think about then with this kind of tool that you've written, the Electrum uh, recovery tool, uh, we have to also think about how far should they, how far should it scan um, until it can't find an address? And I suppose you're saying uh, you would just use the default uh, twenty gap limit, but I guess the trade-off is really that whoever, whichever server you're using, like the Electrum server, so it could be Electrum Rust server or probably Electrum X, that that could be like a dos thing like right? if you set that really high to scan then that means like if lots of people are all trying to rescan then that's like a, a lot
1: of load on that server right yeah that's right so yeah we use 20 which is the which is like the the recommended standard in bit 44 uh, which is what pretty much every wallet's use. uh the, like somebody did recommend on the github issue like oh maybe we should increase it to like ten thousand or something so we can support btc pay but uh, Thomas and ghost the election developers were both like no I really don't feel comfortable with that it would be yeah it'd be putting a lot of load on the election servers and and there's no like there's no uh, monetization in running an election server it's just like uh, people just do it to benefit the community so yeah it's nice to sort of not put them under too much unnecessary stress
0: and Luke I know you run one yourself can you tell us a little bit about how and why you do that
1: yeah I mean I just run it for myself personally and i just thought i may as well <laughs> expose it for anyone else uh so yeah mine is available at uh bitcoin.lutechilds.co um and i also run it under a tor hidden service which i can't remember off the top of my head um but yeah i just do it just because i needed it and i thought i might as well expose it publicly and uh also i i uh, I've, I've publicly said like if any developers want to like interface with an electrum server you're free to use mine and just like stress test it as much as you want and just sort of battery. I just, I, the reason I make it public is just so I know, like if I'm ever doing some sort of random scripty stuff, I can just quickly ping uh, bitcoin uh, Bitcoin.lukechiles.co and I know I've got an Electrum server that's that's going to be up and running.
0: That's great. And so in terms of running that, is that just a VPS? Is that expensive to run? What 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 goes into it?
1: Uh, it's just a VPS. Yeah. It's just uh so what I actually personally use for my stuff is a local Raspberry Pi node. Um, but then I also run this secondary for like less important things. It's a VPS on DigitalOcean. So obviously uh, I can't be sure that DigitalOcean aren't monitoring it in any way. Like I don't think they would be, but I can't be sure they're not. Um, and yeah, it's like a $5, it's like a $5 VPS, but I have like a, an external volume with the blockchain storage on, with like a Bitcoin full node. And then that's the, the, where the costs are involved. I think it's like maybe 30 or $40 a month for the actual storage for the blockchain and then $5 for the actual server. If you want to run your own on a cloud server yeah it's about it's around like 30 to 40 dollars a month or but personally i would definitely recommend running your own locally on a raspberry pi with something like umbral
0: so for most people yeah they would just have you know they'd be running one of these node packages and obviously we're going to get into umbral later but i suppose for most people they would only be using it on their local network and it might be a little bit more difficult to kind of connect back uh from outside uh unless they're doing it through tor but i suppose uh, maybe if you were to run uh, the Electrum server or Electrum X, it probably in this case on a VPS, then you might be more comfortable kind of exposing that on Clearnet, right?
1: Yeah, and the other thing is, so if it's just for you personally to use on one machine, uh, absolutely local is the way to go. It's going to be faster to just run a local server. Uh, you can run the the Rust Electrum server, or also the these like uh, uh, BWT Bitcoin Wallet Tracker. Yeah, uh, I think it's called. I uh, uh, suppose, it's, sure yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really great uh, implementation as well. So if it's just for you to use personally, that's that's the easiest solution, and also probably going to be quicker than running a remote server. But the other benefit of running a remote server is uh, you can also share it with like family members and friends. So you know you can have like a trust minimised setup where people who aren't technical enough to maybe do this stuff themselves, but also understand that they shouldn't be just trusting random third parties, could choose to have a trusted individual like, you know, uh, an uncle or a friend or whatever where they connect to their Electrum server um, and, you know, they're trusting, they have somebody that they trust to not lie to them instead of just trusting a random stranger not to lie to them.
0: Yep, and the privacy aspects as well that you're doxing only to your Uncle Jim, the proverbial Uncle Jim yeah, node. Exactly. So this might be an example for listeners who who want to set up for their community. This might be a good idea as well because then they can point uh, and there's lots of different wallets that can point to electrum so I know obviously the electrum phone wallet can point to it um, and even I think blue
1: wallet can and yeah blue wallet's based on electrum uh, protocol and also Phoenix the the lightning wallet you can back yeah. that by your own electrum server too
0: yeah so that's a really cool one as well so I guess uh, turning to wallets what are you you know mostly interested in wallet wise and you know kind of where are you currently um, on that?
1: I'm really interested in uh, CoinJoin uh, like, and, and wallets that are implementing CoinJoin functionality. Uh, so I'm keeping my eyes on that. Um, I think there are pros and cons with all of the current implementations. Uh, so I try not to get too political <laughs> about that. Sure, sure, yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on with that at the moment. But uh, yeah, I'm really interested in that space. I think like that is so important. Um, and things like post-mix tools and um, not even post-mix tools, but just... UTXO, like just how to manage your UTXOs properly is something that a lot of wallets miss out on. And and really you're, you know, you're really exposing your privacy by not, by just sort of letting your wallet blindly choose UTXOs and motion together. So I'm very interested to see what emerges from that space, um,
0: yeah, so speaking of that, even with this recent dust attack, now it seems that it was basically some uh, BSV type person who just wanted to do like spam some recently used addresses. But you can see as well, to your point, about not having post-mix tools or not being able to, for example, mark that piece or that chunk or that UTXO as do not spend, then you can inadvertently dox your privacy by spending it together with some other UTXO, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, one of the simplest things you can do to mitigate stuff like this is label all of your transactions. So uh, Wasabi has good support for this. Um, and also, uh, Electrum allows you to do this. It's just label every, label every single transaction that you send out, label every single transaction that you receive. Um, and then when you go to spend coins in the future, you can be aware like, oh, okay, I received this payment from this guy. And now i'm paying this thing like do i potentially want this person to find out i've made this i paid this bill or here's a transaction that i have no idea who i received it from and it's a really small amount that looks a bit suspect so let's not use that utxo so just labeling the transactions to make sure you keep track of where your coins came from is is i think a very simple and and very effective way that you can kind of mitigate some of these attacks and reduce the the privacy loss you get cool and
0: so you mentioned that you've done some blue wallet contributions as well can you tell us a little bit about what you've done on that side
1: yeah. So that was, um, so I worked on a, the Payjoin client library in Bitcoin JS. Uh, and that was a, that was a joint work between me and cooks from B2C pay and Jonathan Underwood, who's like the main, the main developer on uh, Bitcoin JS. So I worked together with those guys for the, for the Bitcoin, uh, for the, uh, pay join client library, which is just a sort of generic library that can be integrated into any JavaScript wallet to add, uh, join functionality. And then, um, we, we got that to a point where it was almost ready, but the, the actual payjoin bit wasn't standardized at this point. So we just kind of implemented it up to the point that the bit was at, uh, knowing that we'd have to make some changes in the future. Then just to kind of test that implementation, uh, I went ahead and started to integrate it into uh, Blue Wallet. So this was a few months ago now, and it was basically integrated. So it's like 99% done. But um, the yeah the bip has changed quite a bit since then, and like me and Cook and Cooks and, and John kind of had other things that we were focusing on, um, so I haven't had time to go back and and update that uh, since the bip has been finalised. Um, I think Cooks has been doing some work on the page client, finishing that up to get it in the state that it's that it's aligned with the bip and uh, Overtorment, which is I think the lead developer of you go uh, Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had him on recently, actually. Uh, yeah, I think he's taking over the the implementation that I did and is 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 finishing that up and getting that ready. So, so yeah, that was a while ago that I did that, but it was because the bit wasn't standardized; it wasn't ready to be merged. And the bit has been standardized now, so that should land soon. But uh, some other people have have taken over finishing that up for me
0: with Payjoin as well. I guess uh, one interesting thing there is it actually does change the the QR code that you scan. So, for example, if you scan the BTC Pay. Um, with Payjoin enabled, it actually has a different, um, obviously, because that's how it's done. Um, but uh, then that might even break uh, compatibility with other wallets uh, because they might not be used to reading or like coded to be able to read a Payjoin enabled invoice, right?
1: Uh, so that's I, a funny thing there. I don't think it will. It's likely that that would break compatibility. Uh, compatibility because um, I, can't remember, I can't remember what the bit number is now, like bit forty something. But there's like a there's a there's a specific uh, Bitcoin URI which like starts with the word Bitcoin, then it has a Bitcoin address, and then it can have these optional query parameters that you can sort of add extra metadata to it. Uh, and the, the page join information is added as one of these extra query, query parameters. So any, any wallet that is able to scan like a, a Bitcoin URI, uh, if it sees any of these extra query parameters that it doesn't understand, it should just ignore them. So uh, I think the chances of, of it breaking existing wallets is, is pretty low.
0: I was uh, funnily enough, I was actually testing it out just with Phoenix Wallet on my own BTC Pay, and uh, I think that was the reason why it couldn't scan the Bitcoin oh, really? address. Yeah, so I, I I mentioned that with the um, Phoenix Phoenix guys, so I'm sure they'll patch that up and so on. But um, but yeah, it's just a funny little thing where. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, it's a good thing to have, and obviously, uh, the more um, people doing payjoins, the better it is for the overall network in terms of breaking that uh, common input ownership heuristic. Um, so I want to also chat a little bit about your open source contributions just generally. So I know you, um, just from reading your page and just from seeing some of the stuff you do, you actually maintain a, a, bu- a different a bunch of different things as well. Can you tell us a little bit about those, the ones that aren't necessarily directly in the Bitcoin world?
1: Yeah. So, um, I think I've, so I've published a lot of JavaScript modules on npm, uh, that's like where most of my work has been. I've done some other things, but mostly JavaScript modules on, on MPM. Sorry, just I've... for listeners who aren't familiar, can you just spell out what
0: is NPM?
1: NPM is Node Package Manager. So uh, Node.js is like uh, uh, like a JavaScript implementation. Uh, and NPM, Node Package Manager, is like a, a package registry. So uh, if say if I'm writing uh, like a Bitcoin library, like say Bitcoin.js, I publish Bitcoin.js to NPM. And then if anybody else is writing, wants to write a Bitcoin wallet in JavaScript, they just do NPM install Bitcoin.js and it'll pull it down and they have it ready in their project, so it's just a way for people to share like code libraries, modules, and stuff like that. So I've published a lot of modules to npm. Uh, I think maybe like about eighty modules that I've written myself, and then there's probably like maybe about ten that I just help contribute towards. Um, and yeah, it's really crazy. Like they've 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 became really popular. Um, some of them, like I think I've had about. Uh, 7 billion downloads total over all of them now, um, which is just absolutely insane. Like it kind of terrifies me a little bit that people put this much trust in my code. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. some of them are used, uh, quite a lot. And like if you're, if you're building something, uh, cause, cause a lot of the modules are like kind of low level. So I've done like a really low level key value store that's used, that's depended on by a lot of other modules. Uh, I've done some work on like, like Bitcoin JS, obviously, which is used depended on by a lot of other Bitcoin projects, uh, browserify, which is a project that allows code written in node JS to work in the browser, which a lot of projects make use of that under the hood. Um, so like, actually if you're, if you have like a JavaScript project, there's a good chance there's some of my code in there somewhere, just very low down hidden around.
0: I see. And so it's one of those things where when you talk to some more technical people and they talk about how the internet is like this patchwork of various different projects all cobbled together and some of them are maintained by some random guy that you've never you've never met before and in some sense you're one of those guys. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah honestly, that's probably more true than most people realize.
0: so it's kind of like um people i guess if you're not as technical you might just you know interact with your phone on the web browser or whatever and it all kind of works very slick and smooth and you think it's all you might think naively you might think it's secure and so on but actually underneath there's kind of all these possible upstream uh, dependencies and potential vulnerabilities there also right
1: yeah well this is actually a very huge issue with uh node.js is um and JavaScript, there's like this mentality uh, in the JavaScript ecosystem of everything should be a small, reusable, composable module, which is a really productive mantra. It's it's like, it's, it allows you to be incredibly productive and I love JavaScript for this. If I have like an idea in my head, I can just smash out some code really quickly because there's all these pre-made third-party modules that I can just pull down from NPM to just sort of use as building blocks to build this functionality together. So it's great for productivity and it's great if you're not doing like security critical stuff. Like if you're just building a, you know, a brochure website or something. But when you start trying to build really security, critical applications in JavaScript, you have this real auditability nightmare because let's say you're writing some software and you include five modules that help you implement that functionality. And then each of those five modules are implementing five other modules. And each of those five modules uh, are including five other modules. Before you know it, you have this dependency tree of like hundreds of different third-party modules written by random people on the internet, and you don't know who they are. And it's impossible for you to go through and audit every single line of this code. Um, So yeah, this is kind of an issue uh, in the JavaScript ecosystem. It's something we prevent, well, we try and mitigate against in Bitcoin.js. So we don't really use any third-party libraries in Bitcoin.js, and the few that we do, uh, like Browserify, most of the Bitcoin GS contributors are also Browserify contributors, so we're kind of involved in those projects. But a lot of a lot of JavaScript projects don't take this approach; they just blindly include uh, third party dependencies. And yeah, like it, it's just blind trust—you're just blindly trusting every single person in your dependency tree to not push a malicious update.
0: Right, and so. It's sort of like, it's like the programmer equivalent of copying someone's homework and you don't know what's inside it because you haven't had the time to go and look at everything. And part of it is just because it's such a huge tree
1: that it wouldn't be feasible to go and check everything for yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, like some some, some of the projects that I've seen, like sometimes they have literally multiple thousands of lines. That it's just listing the dependencies. So that's not code. That's just thousands of lines listing the dependencies that then contain hundreds of lines of code each. So, yeah, when you have something like that, it would actually probably be significantly less effort to just write everything from scratch than it would be to actually read through all of that third party code and understand it. You know, it's not always easy to understand somebody else's code, even not necessarily because it's bad, but because they've just had a different way of thinking about a problem than you would have yourself. It's very difficult to go through that amount of code and audit it, really understand how it's working and be sure that there's no vulnerabilities in it or intentional backdoors in it. I see because
0: it could be that there was like a very subtle error or it could be that a bug or a a malicious Code, a piece of malicious code was hidden in a subtle way and you—you you, 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 unless you really know how to find it or you spend the time, you might not see it. Um, but one other point there, that sort of conflicts a little bit with what I've heard of like the, the kind of Unix development philosophy, this idea that everything should be modularized. How would you kind of counter that idea? Do you think it's like it's only true up to a point? No, no, no. So I
1: 100% agree with like the Unix philosophy of like small focused programs. The issue is with uh, so in Unix, like most of these, like like all of these small uh, focused binaries, like cat to to list a file or like ls to list the files in a the directory, where they just do one small tiny thing. That's fine, but that code's been like audited by a lot of people, and the people who wrote that were probably quite reputable and probably like when they were building these, they were probably discussing this these ideas on a mailing list, and, and everyone in like uh, like Linux or POSIX or whatever kind of agrees, yeah, this is a useful utility. The the difference between that and the what we have on npm is that these modules are written by like somebody who, who has no accountability. They have no reputation. They have nothing. Like it could be an anonymous account. They have nothing to lose by pushing um, a. Yeah, this is the main issue. It's, it's it's that they can push a malicious update. So like let's say like the with the like Unix philosophy. If the author of ls right the command used to list the directory pushed a malicious update that. Scanned the user's hard drive for a Bitcoin wallet and then post it to their server. No Linux distribution in the world is going to include that change because they're going to have lots of people carefully auditing the changes, and that would be very obvious to spot. Nobody's going to include that on npm. People just blindly do npm install. They don't even check the code. They just they read the README on GitHub. They're like, oh, this looks cool. npm install. Pull that shit down. Publish it. (laughs) Nobody actually audits any of this stuff. And even if you do audit it, the next time you do npm update and update all your dependencies. Like you would really need to be going through every single line of change, every single line of every single line that's changed in all these thousands of dependencies to make sure somebody didn't push a genuine module and then slip in a malicious update later. Like it's this sort of the auditing that doesn't really happen uh, in the NPM ecosystem and it isn't really feasible to do because of the size of the dependency trees. Whereas uh, the sort of Unix philosophy, I don't think that same attack would, I just don't think you'd be able to get away with it. So it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily the small focused part. It's the, it's, the huge, it's the huge dependency tree part.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to try and understand. And I know even in the Bitcoin world, uh, some of the Bitcoin core developers are trying to look for ways to try to minimize those dependencies uh, or to try to get a better knowledge through that whole upstream chain so that we at least know what we're trusting uh, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think that's a great thing to do. Like, I think, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think at some point, uh, Bitcoin Core depended on OpenSSL, which is known as being kind of like a crazily complicated code base. And, I, and then I think uh, within like the last year or two, that was actually removed and that like all of the stuff that we were depending on OpenSSL for was implemented directly in Bitcoin so we could remove the OpenSSL dependency. So things like that, I think are great and and make it much, make they make the code base much more auditable, much easier to audit and much much easier to be able to trust that the code is actually doing what you think it's doing.
0: Uh, and just out of curiosity, as you mentioned Bitcoin JS, do you know just some example wallets or other Bitcoin software that actually depend on Bitcoin JS? Just for listeners who are curious.
1: Yeah, so uh, Bitcoin, uh, so uh, Blue Wallet uses Bitcoin JS. Uh, Exodus, which is it's like a closed-source multi-asset wallet, but they're using Bitcoin.js and they actually sponsored me to work on Bitcoin JS for a t- for a while, uh, which is really nice of them pretty much any web wallet is most likely using Bitcoin JS. There are some alternatives like uh, BitPay have their own uh, library called like Bitcore JS, I think, but, but it's not that popular. Bitcoin JS is the most popular. So, so any web wallet is pretty much always using Bitcoin JS. and yeah, I'm sure there are a lot more, but uh, off the top of my head, those are the, the ones that I can think of.
0: I guess while we were, we were just recently chatting on some of those ideas around security, I know you also do a little bit around security and vulnerability disclosures as well. So what sort of what goes into that process? Is that something you do out of interest or is it something that maybe you, you, you go and find like bug bounties and get income from that? Or what's kind of your process around that?
1: Yeah, so it's purely something I actually do out of interest. I enjoy it. It's fun. Um, and it was something that kind of, uh, subsidized my open source work a little bit, uh, because although like, I'm very lucky recently, I've had some sponsors on GitHub sponsorship and in the past I've had occasional, uh, sponsorships from companies. Most of the time I've been working on open source, it's been entirely self funded. So I've had to do occasional, uh, freelance work or paid work to uh, to, to fund it. Um, and, uh, like reporting security. Flaws and then getting awarded bounties for that has been like one way that I've earned money and been able to to fund that. So yeah, like uh, I can't talk about it too much, but um, uh, I found some vulnerabilities in like some some uh, altcoin wallets, uh, a decentralized exchange, uh, a password manager, uh, and then normally normally like the process is I would just contact them, explain um, the issue, uh, work with them to like on how to resolve it and often they will uh, reward you with a bounty for doing that um, but yeah it's not it's not something that I ever like sit down and think right today I'm gonna try and find uh, a vulnerability in something it's normally just uh, when I've been using some software or when I've seen some code on github or I've heard that somebody's doing something and I've just kind of thought oh I wonder if like I wonder if there's a way you could break that I just sort of genuinely find it quite fun to download their software and try and break it and then uh, if I can find a way to break it and report it then it's like a pretty big benefit that I can earn money from that
0: Right. Yeah. And so I know also in the Bitcoin world, people are, because this is all open source, right? People work on, it's kind of like a you scratch your own itch, right? And so sometimes it's about different Bitcoin wallets or projects in the space that want contributors and they want people looking at, you know, because we, the, the saying you hear is eyes on the code. And so I, I suppose one of the ways that happens is, is someone is building things on top of your code. Well, then there's more people looking at it and then they might catch these vulnerabilities has that been your experience also
1: yeah i mean absolutely the more like it really makes so much more sense when we have especially with like mission critical code to have it open so the people don't have to reinvent the wheel people don't have to solve the same problems everyone can can sort of centralize around a, a single solution but also if it's this really critical code where um it's just crucial that it doesn't fail in any way um, the fact that loads of other people are using that same code, and that when any, any whenever anybody finds an issue in it, they can fix it, and everyone benefits from that. It's just mutually beneficial to everyone. It's just it's just a way more efficient way of working, and yeah, just so much so much better for everyone involved. Great. Um, so
0: also wanted to chat about Umbral, which is a new project. So for listeners of my show, you probably already know that there are a range of uh, Node. Packages that are available, things like Mynode and Noddle and Raspberry Blitz and Ronin Dojo and so on. Uh, but I've seen uh, some chatter and I've seen some uh, screenshots, and my friend Katan has also played around with Umbral also. So can you tell us a little bit about it? What is Umbral?
1: Yeah, so it's like um, it's like a sort of like a, a Bitcoin and Lightning uh, application stack. So uh, it's a way it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple way for people to run a Bitcoin and Lightning. Node on their own hardware. Um, we're really trying to focus on like user experience um, and making it as simple and easy to use as possible. Like, you know, there's been a lot of chatter about uh, how easy it is to run a full node recently. Um, and it's like people seem to be pretty split on this. Like some people say, oh, it's too complicated, it's really hard. People like people we can't expect people to be able to do this. And other people will say, like, oh, it's easy. Like you just download Bitcoin Core and that's it. And like they're kind of both right. Like, just downloading Bitcoin Core uh, and double clicking an .exe like that's not hard. Anybody can do that. But there's like there's a lot more to, d- to that than uh, there's a lot more to running a full node than just that. It's like you know maybe you want to install an Electrum server, connect that to your wallet. Maybe you want to set up Lightning. How do you set these up in a way that they can communicate between each other? How do you expose them uh, publicly or or expose them so you can access them remotely um, without doing that insecurely? Like there's a, there's a lot more involved to running a full node and connecting it to modern wallets and stuff than just simply downloading Bitcoin core. And that's the part that I think a lot of people get overwhelmed with and struggle with. So umbrella is trying to, uh, take the pain out of that and, and, and have everything set up and pre-configured in a way that's super secure and private by default, making like good privacy decisions by default. So the user doesn't need to understand the trade offs and doesn't need to understand how to set that up. It's configured for them. Um, and yeah, and just be easy. Uh, just be easy to use. Uh, so so anyone can do it. It should be a full node that's so easy even Peter McCormack can use it. That's that's the end goal, I think.
0: I as I see it, it's intended as like a Raspberry Pi style Bitcoin node, right?
1: Yeah. So it's like um, yeah. So it can run on anything at the moment. The target that we're supporting is uh, Raspberry Pi. So. Just because it's early now um, and we need to just sort of focus on one thing to be able to iterate faster and, and, and put stuff out quicker. We're focusing on the Raspberry Pi, so that's the recommended way of installing it. We, we publish an operating system image that you can download, flash to an SD card, and then it's just whack that in a Pi, boot up, and then uh, you just sort of set it up for your web browser from there. Uh, so, yeah, Pi is the supported uh, hardware target at the moment.
0: Do, do you get any difficulty there with having to code for, like, is it the ARM processor versus other processors?
1: Uh, no, not really. Um, so we're using, uh, like Docker to handle the orchestration and we are using like, um, multi-architecture, uh, Docker images. So, uh, everything just works. And if we, if you wanted to run like, so it runs on ARM, but if you wanted to run it on x86, like, like a normal desktop CPU or server CPU, that will also just work without us really having to change anything. Um, and so obviously like, Bitcoin Core and l are already cross-platform. And then the sort of uh, glue code, the sort of the, the way that we're orchestrating everything is mostly done using Docker and scripting languages, which also work cross-platform. So the actual like hardware architecture is not something that we need to worry about. That's kind of all abstracted away for us.
0: And uh, I mean, from what I've seen in terms of screenshots and uh, the videos and things, it looks really, really slick. So uh, well done with that. I think it looks really nice and um yeah, like it's a bit more, it's a bit more appealing um, for perhaps the the person who's a little bit newer to Bitcoin and running a Bitcoin node and things like that. Um, so, I guess in terms of cost to run one of these, if they were to go with the recommended setup, what kind of cost range are we looking at here?
1: Oh, to be honest, yeah, you know, I'm not actually sure off the top of my head. Um, but I mean, a Raspberry, a Raspberry Pi is like fifty dollars. Uh, so we recommend the four gigabyte, uh, the Raspberry Pi four, four gigabyte. Uh, which I think is about $50. Um, And then we also recommend um, a one terabyte SSD, which is, uh, you know, probably around $100 or something like that. Not sure off the top of my head, but that's the sort of rough ballpark figure that you'd be looking at.
0: One other interesting thing I noted with um, Umbril is that you guys are actually using the compact block filters approach. So Tell us a little bit about that and how you're able to just start straight away without actually having to download the full blockchain to
1: start. Yeah, so the way, so so the thing with that is, um, obviously, is like most people right now are using well, a, a lot of like sort of average users are using like SPV wallets, which is pretty bad because that puts a lot of trust in the miners. But like, there's a reason people are doing that. It's because it's just easy. It's just you download a, an app, you open it, uh, and it just works. Like it's instantly on. It just works straight away um it's it's hard to convince people to run a full node and wait like three days for the blockchain to sync when they could just install an app and and it would be working instantly you know it's hard to like convince them that that's something they need to do um so with Umbrel, we kind of achieve the best of both worlds by uh when you set up your Umbrel, um we start syncing bitcoin core in the background instantly a full website so we start syncing a full node instantly but it's instantly accessible. The on-chain wallet and the Lightning wallet is instantly accessible, but it's backed by Neutrino. So it's backed by an SPV node. Um, so this, and and Neutrino SPV is actually pretty good. It improves upon like previous SPV technology. So it gives you almost as good privacy as a full node. Um, it's just the, the trust element in the miners, which is the negative. Um, so it uses, it uses, Uh, neutrino so everything is instantly available and then as soon as your full node is synced like however long that takes maybe a couple of days uh, it just instantly switches over to using the full node so it's just a temporary issue so as long as you trust the miners to not pull off some huge coordinated attack in like the first couple of days then there's basically no downside whatsoever um, and all of the upsides you just get an instantly accessible node that's eventually backed by a full node
0: Yeah, it's a really clever approach. And I think that would be great to see Uh, um, uh, because basically it means the user can just get started up and going right away. And so they don't have to premeditate it as much in terms of setting it up and then waiting for a few days and then getting started with doing whatever they want to do with it.
1: The approach that we're taking with a lot of the the features that we want to add to Umbrel is that the user doesn't need to be aware of them. So the user doesn't need to understand like what SPV is, what a full node is like—they don't even need to know that. They know that they don't need to know when to switch over or anything. As far as they're concerned, they just plugged a, bo- a box in, they set it up, and then they can just use Bitcoin. Like they are completely unaware of what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, that's a clever approach, and I think that's probably the right one uh, for uh, that next level of user, right? So obviously, listeners of my show tend to be the more advanced uh users but uh for you know people who are you know we're trying to teach our family we're trying to teach our friends this is uh probably the way to go so uh, in terms of um what we've got currently on umbrella as i understand you've got bitcoin core and lightning are you looking to do any of the whole electrum server thing or have a way to hook up your mobile phone wallet with your bitcoin
1: node and things like that uh, absolutely so we we don't have any like hard coded plans for like we're going to add this up we're going to add that up we're just kind of waiting to see what the community asks us for um, and what there's demand for. And we're just going to, you know, we're just going to implement what people are asking for really. But yeah, we've already had people ask for election servers. We've already had people ask for a block explorer. We've already had people ask uh, for mixing apps that run on the umbrella device. Um, so yeah, if we get demand for those, absolutely. We're going to add those and, and anything else, you know, if there's things that people want, we just, we want them to tell us and, will implement what people want. And uh, who else is working on the project, by the way? Uh, so there is uh, Mayank Chapra, uh, who is, he is like the really the brains behind everything. Uh, he he designed everything. So all of the all of the uh, compliments on the design uh, should all go to him. Um, and then we also have another developer called No Limit, uh, who's been helping us out. And there are a few other people uh, who have, who sort of loosely are involved in a, like, it just sort of, we talk ideas over a lot. Uh, me, Damien's been really, he- um, Damien me has been really helpful. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's mainly uh, me and MyAnk and No Limit who have been uh, building it.
0: With the seed as well, um, I was chatting with Katan; he was telling me it is the LND AEZ, which is another type of seed from what we spoke about at the start, right? Because you've got BIP39, you've got Electrum Style, and then you've got AEZ, right? Which is the LND Style.
1: Yeah, yeah, so... Um... We don't really have a choice there. We're using LND uh, to kind of abstract away the differences. So, so we can just interface with LND and then we can do things with like Lightning. We can do things with on-chain Bitcoin and we we can configure LND to use uh, to be backed by Bitcoin Core or to be backed by Neutrino. So using LND gives us a, a common interface to just interact with for all of that, regardless of what backend is being used. Um, and LND uses AZ. So we didn't really have a choice in that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. But I, I think it's a clever approach uh, because, in some ways, it's quite—it's a bit of a simplification of um of what's going on, and so that way, it's a bit more. I can I can understand why. Um, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. A seed there. is
1: also pretty cool in that it encodes the birth date of the wallet. Uh, so I mean, also it goes back to what I was saying before about whether a seed is one to one or one to many. In the case of umbrella it's one to one, right? The LND seed is for the seed that we give you is for the LND wallet. Um. So in this case, it makes sense to encode version day or it makes sense to encode a birth because it's specifically for that Lightning wallet. Um, if you, like, uh, so the, like, you've, got, you've got to think of Umbrella as a server, not a client. So it's not really a wallet. It's like an application stack. And if you wanted to use a wallet like Electrum or whatever, you would connect that to your Umbrella and that would have its own seed that you would deal with. Um, so yeah, AZ has, has the birth date of the wallet encoded into it. Which means that when you recover it, it can really efficiently rescan the blockchain to recover your funds because um, it has the birth date, so it doesn't need to scan from the genesis block. It knows, you know, this wallet was created on this date, so there's no point scanning on blocks before that. We only need to scan on blocks after that.
0: Uh, and in terms of the model for Umbrella, is it going to be like a, uh, like is it a pay paid product or how, how's that part going to work?
1: So the idea is that umbrella is going to be a for profit open source project so uh, we want to be self-sustainable right we don't want to have to rely on donations or just spending our own time on building it we want it to be self-sustainable and have some sort of sustainable funding model Um, we really don't know what that's going to look like yet Uh, we're not really worried about that at the moment we're trying to just get validation on the idea we're trying to get something out there get feedback on it see if people are actually interested in it see if people like what we're building Um, and then if people like it then we're confident that we will be able to find some sort of way to monetize that and and turn it into a something that can you know fund itself um but th- to be clear umbrella itself like umbrella is always going to be a free and open source software project we're never going to just be like oh now you need to pay us for umbrella there will be some kind of paid additional services that would complement it hopefully that we could come up with uh, to monetize it that would be the idea in the future but yeah as of now we' we don't know exactly what that would
0: look like it could be something like you might uh, sell the pre-made version of the you know of the box or have like a premium version that you pay for or things
1: like that yeah something like that really like it's just yeah you know it, it, if we're building umbrella and people are say people are saying like people have some sort of issue that we can't really justify solving for free because it would there would be costs behind it but there's but we could be like oh we could solve this problem but it's going to cost us money then that could be something we'll sell you know like yeah just whatever 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 we come up with along the way really
0: gotcha um and i guess just in terms of determining which features to actually implement i mean you mentioned based on uh community feedback but i guess how how are you going to figure out which one are you just going to have to like pick which based on popularity of what the community is asking for or just kind of maybe think in your mind what sort of user like have a target user in mind that you're trying to build for
1: Uh, So I think, yeah, a big part of it is just going to be what most people uh, are requesting. But also there's something, there's some features that like people might not really request because they don't really know that they need it, but that that we think are important to add. So for example, um, automated channel backups is something that we are almost ready to release, which nobody's requested that, but uh, we think that's pretty important. Um, And also like I I'm really happy with the way that we implemented this because we were discussing on how to do this for a really long time and I wasn't really satisfied with any of the solutions but I think we've came up with a really good approach to this um, but uh I was kind of worried about a potential privacy leak because if we basically we want to we want to back up the channel data every time it changes because you know you, you need an up to date channel backup but there is kind of like we need to um, link it to some unique id Uh, which is deterministically derived from the seed. So basically, the recovery process is completely transparent. Uh, Your your channel states are backed up with a unique ID that's deterministically derived from your seed. So let's say your house gets struck by lightning and it fries your umbrella. You can set up a new umbrella. And when you put in your seed phrase, that obviously recovers your on-chain funds, but it can't recover your your lightning funds from the static channel backups. But what it will do, Umbrella will deterministically derive the same backup ID from your seed. It will then ping our servers and say, Hey, do you have any, do you have any channel backups from this, from this ID? We respond and say, yeah, we send back a channel backup, which is encrypted, uh, from an encryption key that's also deterministically derived from your seed. So we can't read those backup files, but, uh, Umbrella will automatically just decrypt that, import it into LND. So from the use perspective, they've just whacked in a seed phrase and then Umbrella is back and up and restored and has all the channel, channel balance. Balances available, they weren't aware that any like channel backup stuff even existed like it's just everything is just linked to that one seed um but yeah we were we were kind of worried about like how can we do this in a in a privacy respecting way right because if we're pinging our update server with a with an id uh each time your channel state changes there are I mean, it would be quite difficult to pull off, but there are potential attack, like uh, de-anonymizing attack vectors there. Like yeah. uh, if we were doing like a timing analysis attack, like, if we if we were monitoring the lightning network and seeing how the state changes on the lightning network of all the channels, and we saw that, right, this, this, this ID backed up their channel state data uh, 57 times that day, and then this channel changed its state 57 times that day, we could make a correlation there. So the way we do the backups, uh, we back up every time the channel state changes But then we also just randomly back up on random intervals, even if nothing's changed, to kind of throw off this analysis that we would be able to do. And we also pad the backups with like a random amount of of random data. Um, So you could back up three times in a row, even though nothing's changed on your device. And one time the backup could be bigger in size, the next time it could be smaller in size, the next time it could be smaller in size. Nothing in your backup has changed size, but we add this random padding. So we can't tell when it's a genuine backup, when it's like a decoy backup, whether your backups increased, reduce, change, change in size. We can't monitor any of this data. Um, and I think that's really important because we don't want our users to trust us. Like, obviously I trust myself not to de-anonymize our users, but I don't want our users to have to trust us not to do that. I don't want to put myself in a position where we have that information. And it's not just about trusting us. Like if we got a request from law enforcement to, to share some data with them, like we'd have to make a decision between like, do I fuck over my users? or do I go to prison? Like Neither of those are particularly appealing options to me. So I wanna, like, we wanna make sure that we don't ever put ourselves in that position and we don't even have access to that data in the first place.
0: Right, and this can be a bit of a difficult question. Uh, I know um, in the case of Noddle, they use like a USB key to do the backups, and then, yeah, but then it it takes, but then the question is, is that easy for the user and so on? And I I don't know, in the Noddle case, they've they've done things to try and make that a bit easier, but certainly I appreciate. uh, That's uh, a a bit of a tricky one to handle there. Um, And I guess the other point really is just that if people are using uh, Umbral, it depends really how they're going to use it. And if many people are just going to be hodling, well, they're probably just going to be on a hardware wallet, in which case they just want Electrum server or they want something like Spectre connecting to Bitcoin Core on the Umbral in this case. Um, because they don't want to leave too many too many bitcoins or too much fun too many funds on the device hot they just want only the amount that they were doing for the lightning channels component and then all the savings hodling stuff is in the
1: hardware wallet part right absolutely and that's the way we would recommend people use it um, and also uh, the way you said about how like some people only care about uh, like bitcoin and electrum or whatever so the idea that we want to work towards with umbrella is like each application that we add to Umbrella is like isolated. Uh, it's like uh, there are very strict like like permission a uh, permissioning system and, and isolations between these apps and how they can interact with each other. Um, and you will be able to uh, choose which apps you run on Umbrel. So, like, it's up to you to choose what you want on your Umbrel. We're we're not, not going to be like pushing our decisions on other people and saying, "Oh, now everyone has to run this. Now everyone has to run that." You know, it's going to be up to you to choose. Like, I want this. I want this. I want that.
0: And obviously, I understand with Umbral, it is in an early stage at this point. So it's kind of like in a beta test, kind of uh, small number of users who are just playing around with it, and more technical users who are giving feedback so what stage would you say you're at uh in terms of like going to a to the next i guess next phase or next release
1: yeah so i, I should probably be clear about this um Umbrella in its current state is like it, we're not saying that it's like stable we're not saying it's safe for large amounts of money it absolutely isn't uh we've, we've taken reasonable lengths to like try and protect people from fund loss and stuff but like absolutely it's early it's in beta uh, there will be bugs um we encourage people to test it out. We want people to test it out on mainnet, but just like with small amounts of money, you know, with like don't put any money on Umbrella that you're not prepared to lose yet. Uh, because, you know, yeah, it is new and um, you know, I don't know when we're gonna be at a stage where we say it's stable and it is safe for, for funds, but there are like um there are there are multiple things that we're aware of that that aren't that we're not comfortable recommending people put large amounts of funds on while it's in that state and we will rectify that before we say it's it's stable, but yeah, I'm not sure exactly how long that will be yet. There's also, uh, if you're interested to know more about that, if you go on our GitHub, we link to like a security.md file that, that specifically lists the things that we have, like some sort of shortcuts that we've taken for now to, be able, to make it easy for people to test and debug and stuff that are not ideal for security and that we will fix, but we've documented some of these if you want to read about them on our GitHub.
0: Awesome. And so just turning more broadly to Bitcoin and Lightning, is there anything that you are particularly excited about over the next year or so? Are there any particular developments you're looking forward to? Or is there anything in particular that you think you know Bitcoin and Lightning wallets or applications need?
1: Uh, yeah, so really uh, just improved uh, privacy. So CoinJoin and PostMix CoinJoin tools, I'm really, really just keen to see where that goes. Um, also interested to see uh, Taproot and Schnorr be deployed. Yeah, uh, mainly privacy for me. Privacy is the main thing that motivates me. Um, and, and a big part of also why I started working on Umbrella was because uh, before I was working on Umbrella, I had a lot of privacy tools I wanted to build, but I was, a lot of these privacy tools only really work when you get a large amount of people to use them. Uh, if it's only a minority of people using them, you don't have a good like anonymity say you don't have a good crowd to hide in. And then when I saw what my aunt was doing with, with umbrella, I kind of thought this is like really lowering the barrier of like technical knowledge for people to get into Bitcoin. So if I can help with this project and then try and focus on adding like privacy tools to it, that could not only be building useful privacy tools, but also building useful privacy tools that are much more accessible to users of a, a wide range of skills, which ultimately just you know really benefits everybody.
0: Excellent. Well, look, I think they're, they're the key points I was interested to hit. Uh, Luke, before we let you go, where can listeners find you? And also if they would like to sponsor your development on GitHub, where can they find you?
1: Uh, so uh, lukechilds.co has links to all of my like social profiles and stuff. Uh, I'm at lukechilds on Twitter uh, and also github.com forward slash lukechilds is my GitHub uh, profile.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Yeah, thanks a lot, Stefan. It's been great. Subscribe to the show, share it with your friends and get the show notes at stefanelivera.com slash 206. That's it from me. I'll see you in the Citadels.